Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to the Beatles Films Podcast. I'm Matt Looker. I'm Ed Williamson. We're both professional film writers and Fab Four fans and each week we discuss a different movie about, starring or inspired by the Beatles. And this week that film is 1991's The Hours and Times, a relatively short and intimate and heavily fictionalised account of John Lennon and Brian Epstein's short holiday together in Spain in 1963. It won big awards at the following year's festival circuits, including the Special Jury Recognition Prize at Sundance, and it marks the first film in Ian Hart's trilogy of John Lennon portrayals. To kickstart things off, we mentioned quite a few times in previous episodes that it's not necessarily important for biopics to be accurate in order for the film to work and be successful mm. in its in its uh, aim. This is the first film where I feel like the fictionalised element is of note and we should probably dig into uh, how accurate a depiction of this holiday we feel this film achieves. More so than, say, The Two of Us, which was our very first episode we ever recorded, which is also a fictionalised account, but doesn't feel like it's doing anything controversial in its depiction, whereas this is making quite a big statement or making quite a big revelation in its depiction. So I think we probably need to dig into some of that a little bit first. Yeah. So did this film ring true for you in its depiction of, of their relationship and also what you know about this particular holiday and their break? Well, so one of the reasons why the film has the space to sort of take creative license and it's reasonable creative license by the way I don't think there's anything wrong with the approach it takes uh, is because no one really seems to know what went on between John and Brian on the holiday they went on so this John, John Lennon and Brian Epstein went on holiday to Spain together on the 28th of April 1963 so this is uh, the Beatles have released the Please Please Me album so we're kind of they've got, they've sort of gone massive in the UK uh, and like to, maybe to some extent in Europe, but they're a sort of what nine, nine months or so off the sort of breaking America and going sort of fully global. So that's kind of where we are in terms of their stardom. The Beatles have a break; they go for a twelve-day holiday. Paul, George, and Ringo all go to Tenerife and they stay at a villa owned by Klaus Vormann's family. And there they stay with Klaus and uh, they meet with uh, Astrid Kircher as well. Um, so I don't know if you remember on, on the day she died, uh, those photos, which obviously been around before, but they were shared a lot around on the day she died of her with Paul, George and Ringo in a, in a sort of sunny place. That, so that's that's there. That's, mm. uh, that's when that was. At the same time, so John 
chooses uh, to go instead on holiday with Brian to what I can't quite work out is that uh, whether they actually went on holiday to Torremolinos or to Barcelona or to both. It was a 12-day holiday, so maybe they went to both, although those places are not very near each other. The, the accounts seem to be conflicting uh, about which place in Spain they went to. But both places, places that, that Brian had been before and they were places that were sort of friendly to gay men in 1963. Right. So I'm not sure about the sort of legal status of homosexuality in Spain at that time, but certainly there were they were places where a gay man could sort of be more free than he could be in the in the UK. So the the, the rumor has always been that there was some kind of sexual encounter between the two of them uh, on this holiday. There are conflicting accounts. So John for example, said uh, later on that there was a sort of sexual energy between them, but it was never kind of consummated. He says that he and Brian would kind of sit uh, sit at a cafe and watch the boys go by, and he'd say to Brian, which one do you like? Do you like that one? Do you like that one? And he sort of enjoyed uh, the freedom of playing at, you know, sort of acting gay, if you know what I mean, Mm. that that kind of thing. Pete Shotton in his book um, that he released in 1983 claimed that John had told him Brian had given him a hand job and that he'd done it he let Brian do it just because he felt sorry for him um, and uh, which is a nice thing to do you know? yes exactly <laughs> if you what a good friend you know? very generous <laughs> and uh, Yoko later said I think in in around uh, about five or six years ago said something along the lines of John and I used to, you know, sort of when we talked about it, we came to the conclusion that we were both sort of bisexual people and everyone's bisexual to some degree. We were both bisexual people who had never sort of had a homosexual experience or something like that. So, I mean, there's lots and lots of conflicting accounts here. As we discussed when we were talking about the the Brian Epstein story documentary in our, in our last season, it, as a talking head in that documentary, Paul is sort of, I think we thought, unnecessarily coy about the whole thing. Mm. When later on he sort of said, "No, I don't think there was any truth in it at all." Um, so it's it's in this space that this story sits. So so basically, what uh, director Christopher Munch is is doing is sort of taking a place in which there's lots and lots of uh, confusion and hearsay and rumor about what actually happened, and putting a story in the middle of it. And I think uh, creatively, there's nothing wrong with that approach at all. And uh, and and also just in, in terms of Beatles history there's nothing wrong with that approach either it's, mm. it's not it, it's not pretending or trying to be a historically accurate document yeah and and it's it's interesting isn't it because i think what you've just said there in terms of there being conflicting reports about what happened or or conflicting statements a few of the things that you mentioned there including paul being unnecessarily coy in that Brian Epstein documentary feels like the people saying that could be accused of having an agenda yeah at the time yeah no reason if that's allowed <laughs> no reason not why this film can't give its own view yeah. with a huge disclaimer up front to say that, it's, that it is fictionalized and it's a you know a fictionalized view and i think actually from what you just said there on balance the film actually straddles that line really well because it's it is about you know it the the film is about the the tension of uh, you know sexual tension certainly but like tension between two friends where there is a specific power dynamic between them at play mm. so i think the film actually does quite a good job of of presenting it in a way of we still don't really fully know what happened and this is it feels like it's presented as an uncertain time for both of them anyway this holiday yeah certainly yeah i think um you know maybe that you know in in the film John is sort of recognised a little bit by sort of hotel staff and by an air stewardess, you know. And so while he's sort of at this stage, uh, you know, sort of Beatlemania is a thing in the UK, but, you know, I'm sure it, it seems that sort of individually he's sort of all right, sort of wandering around Spain taking photographs. Um, so I suppose he's at a period in his life just before it all goes properly mad and he can never, be, you know, just be properly alone ever mm. again. Although, you know. Later on uh, in the seventies, you know, he spent spent a lot more time on his own in the Dakota and things like that. Um, we should point out as well that this is, the the holiday takes place twenty days after his son Julian is born. Yeah, and and obviously he's recently married to to Cynthia. Then yeah, because I was going to ask you 
what do you know about the reasons for why John would choose to take this holiday with Brian uh, rather than go with Paul, George and Ringo and see Astrid in Tenerife? Yeah, so I think it was so it, it provokes some, you know, amazement and some commentary that, that John would choose to go with Brian rather than with the other Beatles. Um, so I think I thought about this a bit. And so, you know, it occurred to me, and I think maybe Mimi said it later. I mean, so she sort of quite angrily said something like, uh, no, John wasn't like that, you know, and that, you know, that's disgusting, you know, or, or words to that effect, wow. you know, not, not terribly tolerant about things like that. But she did say that, I think she appreciated the fact that Brian was just a sort of cult, a nice, cultured, well-turned-out man. You know, the kind of sort of, of the sort of class that she aspired to. And, and she, yeah, it's really bringing her prejudices into sharp focus, isn't it? Because on the one hand, <laughs> yeah, he's yeah, a really yeah. nice, turned-out man, the kind of person that you'd want John to hang out with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think, and I think she said that uh, that the two of them would sort of go to art galleries together, and that maybe there it occurred to me actually that there was a, a cultural and artistic life that uh, John could explore with Brian, and perhaps, perhaps that was an outlet he hadn't really had since Stuart Sutcliffe died. It's, mm. it's kind of, it occurred to me, it, I mean, it's a complete coincidence, but that it occurred to me, there's a nice symmetry in terms of Ian Hart playing John in this, when if that is the John Lennon from Backbeat, then the rest of the Beatles are on holiday with the Astrid Kircher who was in Backbeat. You know? Yeah, that's true. And, yeah. and uh, you know, if there's a Beatles cinematic universe, that's a, <laughs> you know, that's a, that, that's a fun element of it. But yeah, I, I think um, there was an outlet of uh, being able to express the more artistic side of himself that he'd sort of lost when Stu died. Um, could sort of explore a little bit with Brian, uh, and later on, of course, explored to the fullest with uh, with Yoko. But at the same time you would have thought to explore that side of himself going to see Klaus and Astrid uh, would be a good way to explore that. You know, yeah, absolutely, he, yeah. he might miss those people for the same reasons. So yeah, it, you know, th- there are Bill Harry and, uh, and Paul as well uh, at various times sort of said that they thought the reasons for him going on the trip were sort of political, if you like, that John was sort of trying to cement his authority as the leader of the band. And I think Paul said something along the lines of, you know, John knew Brian was gay and was sort of, and that Brian fancied him a bit and thought it was, you know, he could sort of manipulate him in order to cement his position as the leader. It That seems a bit far-fetched to me mm. in terms of a bit sort of Machiavellian. There's, there's a bit of that that chimes with this film, though, not necessarily with that intent in mind. But there's definitely this sense, you know, the film represents the dynamic between the two as Brian is kind of hopelessly in love with John. Mm. And John, knowing full well that's the case, is kind of playing a bit of a game with Brian. Mm. And, you know, uh, like you say, not necessarily in a Machiavellian way, but this is John being playful, teasing, almost to the point where you could argue that sometimes it might come across as a bit cruel. Yeah. And And that kind of seems to me to ring true of what we know about John's character. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are times in the film where he is being quite deliberately provocative and and often in a crude way mm. in order to, I guess, test the waters with Brian and, you know, knowing that it's, you know, it's almost like a it's almost kind of like cruel flirting yeah. in a way. Yeah. This is the thing about it is I think it's very easy to get hung up on things like, so the film shows them uh, sort of getting in a bath together, kissing. John sort of breaks it off. And then later on, uh, they sort of wake up in bed together the next day. And it is sort of ambiguous as to whether or not they had sex. But it's very easy to get hung up on these details. People do that a lot with, as we, you know, we, we spoke before about how the, the way to do a proper Beatles biopic is to do it like The Crown. And people who are very big into the royal family tend to get annoyed with the crown because it takes sort of narrative license of things that didn't happen exactly that way but of course if you just want actors to do the exact things that the people did in real life then why, not, why don't you just watch a documentary just watch the anthology right yeah, yeah exactly um you know it's it, it seems an odd way to think about it you know there's there is room for creative expression and and actually really what what christopher munch is doing here is just sort of exploring as you say like that kind of slightly cruel side of john's character you know almost i don't know if he's enjoying sort of toying with brian but he definitely is toying with him a little yeah bit. um and so it's less important whether he did this or not than it is to just have the creative space to explore that side of him a little bit mm. you know? 
And, and I think you know one of the important factors about the film is it, it's really obvious that it doesn't actually matter that this is John Lennon and Brian Epstein. The film isn't about the Beatles right. and their relationship with stardom or fame necessarily. Yeah. It is very much about exploring this power dynamic between two friends mm. and their you know the, the very uh particular relationship that that they have but i, I guess you know john lennon and brennan is, a, is a, a starting point for this you can you can imagine that this would be the beginning of uh of how the film was written mm. but it has no interest in exploring this through the lens of uh, it being a beatles film yeah this is very much about two male friends and and that relationship yeah, yeah. Uh, and in that way, I think that's that is really interesting. You have sort of from a storytelling point of view, this idea of one person being in love with the other, the other person knowing and, and therefore having a degree of control, mm. and how that plays out um, is just quite a sort of powerful idea to explore in itself. And I think that's what that film is doing, right? Yeah, definitely. And I think that uh, that's really interesting. But also thematically, I think what the film does really, uh, what the film is exploring is that both of these people are at a time in their lives where they are kind of living a lie at the moment. So obviously Brian is, you know, secretly gay. John is now married with a kid, but obviously happy to be adulterous with air hostesses. Yeah. And by taking a break together, they can almost just put a pause on what their responsibilities are and the pressures that they have in their otherwise day-to-day life Mm. and just take a complete break from that. Yeah. And they get to sort of share in that freedom a little bit from what they'd normally have to be accountable for. Yeah, yeah, it seems like it. Obviously, a lot of this film is predicated on the idea that Brian was secretly in love with John. Mm. What do we know? What evidence is there to support that this was actually the case? It's so hard to know because it, it this does seem to me as something that has just become accepted... Yeah, just sort of accepted consensus that that sort of Brian definitely fancied John, and so I think it, you know it, it's been sort of been written about enough times by you know sort of reputable enough or authors that that I, that I presume there must be some truth in it, but I don't really know other than Philip Norman's book John Lennon the Life. Um, we're, we're told that Brian once confessed to uh, music producer and paedophile uh, Jonathan King that he fancied John. Um, so, you know, <laughs> who, who, who knows sure. how, how reliable a witness yes, that is. Now, yeah. now, you know, maybe he told other people and I haven't read it. Um, but it, it, it just seems to be one of those things that has always been part of the story about Brian. And maybe it's true, maybe it isn't. I just, you know, I think it, it, it is a popular enough theory that... Uh, it, People just seem to assume it's true and just sort of work on the basis that it is. Um, and, and so fair enough, I suppose. Uh, but I don't know, you know, and I wonder whether it, it, it's sort of when these things first came to be discussed. I think it was in uh, I think it was in the Rolling Stone interview, which would have been 1970, that John first confirmed that Brian had been gay uh, and that it, he'd first discussed this holiday and said that he'd sort of, as I said, enjoyed sort of the... Uh, theatrics of sort of hang, hanging around in Spain, almost sort of li- living a gay life without being gay, kind of thing. So yeah, that that interview was where he first confirmed that uh, Brian was gay. But I wonder whether it's just about the thinking about gay men that has that sort of predominated certainly from the seventies, even up until the anthology in the mid nineties, and still t- today to some extent, is this sort of uh, this sort of unpleasant idea that sort of gay men. Uh, must find all men attractive, you know, therefore. There's a little bit of that in sort of what Paul says in the Brian Epstein story documentary. You know, I think he says something along the lines of, well, uh, no, I mean, you know, I would have known if John was gay because, I, you know, I slept in beds, hotel beds with him loads of times, you know. Oh, (laughs) fine. So, of course, yeah, case closed, you're on it, you know. And so, yeah, I wonder whether it's just sort of slightly lazy and outdated thinking that has led people to assume that's the case you know so we we do know that brian would sort of seek uh, dangerous sex especially dangerous when it was illegal and he would sort of get beaten up and get robbed this happened more than once sort of in in in, in london and in liverpool so uh, but and i wonder whether it's just that people have extrapolated like oh he, he you know he liked rough boys and john was the sort of rough yeah. one 
the tough guy, and so he must have gone for him. I, I, I don't know. You know. I'll be honest. Like when you when you say that this is something that seems to have just become accepted knowledge and stuff. This is something that I don't really feel like I've been exposed to through the various Beatles media that I, I consume and have consumed as part of this podcast. You know, I, I think mm. the Brian Epstein doc certainly didn't imply that. Brian was in love with John. Yeah. I would obviously discussed his uh, homosexuality, but nothing about that. There was there wasn't really obviously anything in the anthology that seemed to suggest that. Although that's probably again part of that might be because of the the age and the time. I haven't heard much talk about that in other podcasts. Yeah, but maybe it is in. Uh, I haven't read many Beatles biographies, so maybe it's um, maybe it's sort of more prevalent in those see it seems to be pretty accepted wisdom in in some but then you know like you know I, i'm taking this from i, I haven't I, I haven't read the uh albert goldman the lives of john lennon for, for you know that's the sort of widely discredited one so you right know, i wouldn't i wouldn't take anything from that uh the Phil, philip norman book john lennon life uh which i've sort of taken these quotes from i haven't read the whole thing myself uh but i do know that there are plenty of people who have their opinions about philip norman yeah um sure. you know so I, I, I don't know. You see, this is the thing is, is it's impossible really to sort of go back and forth and sort of ass- assess the accuracy or otherwise of these, you know. I feel sometimes in terms of Beatles fandom, we're, we're in a sort of pre-Lewison world in a way, you know. <laughs> we're sort of like, you know, we're, we're mid-Lewison. You know? Yes, we are, yes, right. Like yeah, we're, we're just waiting for him to, to <laughs> confirm one way or the other. Right, yeah. But but I do feel like, I mean, listen, this this guy is is approaching this subject with a rigor that no one else ever has. So it's it, as close to historical fact as we're likely to ever get. But I do want, you know, I sort of caught myself thinking, well, well, when he publishes book two, we'll find out for sure. You know, <laughs> yes, which is a dangerous... It is a dangerous it, thing to, yeah, to rely completely on one man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, but I do but I do but sort of find myself thinking that. You know. In Lewis and we trust, absolutely. Yeah, so if he could get a wriggle on that, would be great. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it was, but again, it was interesting because um, for this film, there was a DVD release. For that DVD release, there was a commentary yeah. um, with, with just Ian Hart and David Angus actually being interviewed. It was an interesting take on the commentary, wasn't it? It was just, it so. wasn't just them talking over the action scene, but it was a, it was a proper interview where someone's basically saying, "What were you thinking when you filmed this bit?" Yeah, and um, and what does this bit mean? You know, norm- normally work sort of ends up speaking for itself a little bit, but this is very much like on the nose of forget the ambiguity. <laughs> what mm. happened? Yeah, well, I think actually it may be that uh, sometimes you listen to DVD commentaries and it is quite unfocused because they've obviously just stuck the actor or you know a director or both in a studio and just said, well, watch the film and talk. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. And so, yeah, I wonder with something like this, particularly because it's quite a short film, it's 55 minutes long, so I wonder whether they just thought, well, let's direct, let's take this in a certain direction. Sure, and uh, it works very well. Actually, it does, yeah. No, and I found it really actually very insightful. Yeah. Um, the uh, but but again, I was quite surprised that the way that David Angus spoke about the story, David Angus being the actor who portrays Brian Epstein in yeah. this film, he talks about the events as being as depicted in terms of Brian being in love with John. Mm. So, like, it, it seemed to me in his mind that that wasn't one of the ambiguous elements or any of the elements that have been fictionalised. Yeah. Um, it was, that was the, the jumping off point for exploring what might have happened on this holiday, but that wasn't called into question at all. That yeah. was, so, obviously, I'm, I'm assuming that comes from uh, writer-director Christopher Munch. That's, you know, as far as he's concerned, that he has taken that as kind of relatively as a fact mm. and then fictionalized the 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 break which which is absolutely like like you said before a perfectly good approach and also you can see how that would spark the idea of exploring that dynamic between the two and the reason why the film has been written in the first place but yeah. i was just quite surprised that that wasn't called into question at all that was just you know we know that brian was in love with john so here's what we think might have happened yeah it's sort of interesting to hear david angus talk because ian, ian hart is a big Beatles fan he you know he he knows things about it you know this is where the, what they were doing in 1963 and things yeah. like that David Angus says that at the time he was not even a particularly big pop music fan he That's right, really yeah. knew nothing um he didn't know much about John Lennon he knew nothing about Brian Epstein so he was really approaching this whole thing cold and just working from the scripts as much as anything else so that's what he took from it you know and it's interesting to have a sort of I don't know outsider's view of the whole thing you know? Yes, no, definitely, yeah, yeah, absolutely, and, and that way he gets just. Um, and again, what I said before, you can do it with this. Like no research required, really, because it's not about 
Brian Epstein and John Lennon. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, this is just a, a relationship between two men with a particular dynamic. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I found really interesting, it was only really hinted at uh, in the commentary, but David Angus talks about, and I think it's just a really insightful comment to make, that this idea of there being tension between them kind of arrives out the fact that none of them are saying out loud what they both know, that Brian is in love with John. Mm. And it's kind of hinted at in the commentary, they don't really say it explicitly, that at any point that tension gets broken the moment it gets addressed. Yeah. So the, the, they're both quite happy to just play with this unspoken thing between them, like flirting around this idea that there's something that something might happen or could happen between them, and they're just having fun with that. But obviously, the the moment that anything, uh, the moment that comes out in the open, then that fun stops being had, mm. and that kind of comes to the point where they get in that bathtub together and actually actually start kissing. Mm. That whole fun, the illusion, stuff gets broken and literally gets broken off by John, who obviously stands up and walks out. Mm. And so it's just quite interesting. Like that's sort of just having. David Angus, I think it was him who who mentions this, just really uh, nail exactly where that tension is derived from and and why that sort of interplay between the two work really well. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a really interesting scene that sort of, because as you say, it sort of breaks the tension that's uh, been between them and then like very quickly introduces a new tension after that when it is not fully consummated. It's interesting that John... Uh, John basically initiates it because he goes and sits in the bath. He has the door open. He sits, as he does yes. a couple of times throughout the film, he starts playing the harmonica. Um, when he's doing that in the bathroom, I sort of, I thought, well, this is it's sort of a, a mating call, you know. Him what, the harmonica? Yeah. Brilliant. Uh, and, you know, because Brian is in the other room and you can sort of see his ears prick up and he, when he hears the harmonica. And, if it, you know, and he seems to interpret that as a signal you know mm. you know uh, yeah coming to the bathroom because there are a couple yeah, that's a really good point actually because there are a couple of moments before that in the film where john plays harmonica and it's it is kind of played out almost tenderly mm. you know the, the way that brian sort of responds to john playing the harmonica yeah. it's almost like adoring uh mm. when he listens to john play that yeah uh, in yeah. in the film so yeah i can see how that works definitely yeah because i think the other times in the film where john's playing harmonica he seems to be doing it in a quite a flippant way Maybe even you know this conversation's getting a bit tense, and I'm going to get up and play the harmonica because there's a sort of there's a nonchalance mm. to it. You know, it's one of those things, a bit like sort of uh, the way he uh, chews gum all the way through. You know, yeah. it's Ian Hart. You know, one uh, one of the one of the great sort of Lenonian gum chewers of our age. You know, he's he's, <laughs> he's um he's very very good at chewing gum in the same way that John Lennon chewed gum. Few could match. Great Lenonian gum chewers. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. If we can pull quotes from any of our episodes, that's something that I want to say about Ian. Yeah. Um, I'll, well, I'll... we need to get Ian on this uh, uh, podcast to interview him once so that we can just put that to him. Yeah. Yeah. That would be incredible. I'll I'll add it to his Wikipedia page. <laughs> One of the great Lenonian gum chewers. <laughs> incredible stuff. Uh, well, but what's and, and sorry, to, I feel like interrupting you no, no, with um... the um, with the bar scene. But one of the other things I did want to say was there is a scene earlier on where um, John is playing a harmonica behind Brian, standing up behind Brian as he's sitting down. Brian is mm. looking at him through uh, in in a mirror, reflection yeah. mirror. There's there's quite a lot of mirror and reflection in the film, and I'm, you know I'm you know I've said before I quite enjoy symbolism in movies that I understand. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, like yeah. this is very very much like film studies 101 right yeah. um, but very obviously there are moments where you see say john eating in close-up and then behind him there is a mirror which gives you a reflection of what brian uh, of brian sitting opposite him mm. uh, it makes sense and, and again i just feel that really plays into again this is film studies 101 but this idea of it playing into them having that different side of their character that they're they're either breaking free from or they're able to escape from by going on this holiday together and this yeah. reflection, you know, seeing like a different version of themselves play out which they're able to explore because they're taking this break together away from what they'd normally be doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I suppose if you think about the way that reflections are often done in cinema, I think like an example in The Talented Mr. Ripley where there is a scene towards the end where sort of you see a picture of Matt Damon's... Um, as Ripley reflected in the lid of a grand piano, and as the lid closes, the reflection because, because of the concave or convex nature of it, it just sort of it, the, the two versions of him 
his his image sort of splits into two that kind of yes, thing yeah. you know? and so you think about things like when someone looks in a puddle and then a stone is thrown into the puddle and yes. it breaks it you know so. i always think of um in the film adaptation the charlie kaufman film with yeah. nicholas cage you know it's about the two it's like um charlie kaufman and his twin brother right donald i want to say yeah. i forget i think it might be donald uh, and, and Donald's the lazy writer mm. and he has this moment where he talks about a uh, madman or schizophrenic or somebody like that looking in the mirror and the mirror splits showing lots of different fragments of him and Charlie the Charlie Kaufman in the film calls out that that's such a lazy cliche <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I always think about that even now <laughs> talking about um, mirrors and reflections and yeah. how well that plays out in the film in the back of my head I'm thinking lazy trope lazy trope <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah so I mean you know there, there, there is a lot of symbolism in, in this film and, and you're right a lot of it is sort of film, film studies 101 stuff you know but that you know that doesn't mean we won't mine it uh, for no, hundred percent. But so one, so one thing uh, that really stood out for me is that so in in the film, the two of them, uh, that I think it's like of, of an evening, like Brian notices an advert in the paper to go and see the film El, El Silencio uh, in Spanish, which is the Silence, the Ingmar Bergman film, and they go and see that film, and then the J S Bach piece that is used in it, which I think is the Goldberg Variations. That's right. Uh, which is used in that film. There's also like a bit of a motif where sort of Brian notices it later in his hotel room and they discuss it a little bit. Now, this holiday in real life was in April 1963. The silence didn't come out in Sweden, uh, which is where it was. It first came out until September 1963. And it came, I couldn't find when it came out in Spain, but it certainly wasn't before September 1963. Therefore, it, in in practice, they could not possibly have gone to see that film. So that means that there must be a reason why uh, the director has, or the writer director has chosen to put in that they go and see this film. It must be sort of reflecting something about them. Um, so I watched I watched that film as well, which I'd never seen before, and it's really great. I recommend it. It's on it's it's on YouTube in full with English subtitles. We'll put a link in the um, in the description of the podcast. People can go and watch that if they like. Uh, if you really want to do your homework, you know, and um, that's a really interesting film about it's sort of two sisters um, who are uh, trying to make their way home through a European country that is on the brink of war. One of them is seriously ill, and uh, one of them uh, has her sort of ten-year-old son with her. Um, there's a lot in that film about people sort of failing to communicate with each other so that it's a it's a fictionalized european country with a fictionalized language which none of them speak so they can't really make themselves understood to there's this sort of guy who works in the hotel who they're sort of the, the woman who's ill is sort of having to communicate with him a lot through sign language um, and just sort of gestures and writing things down and stuff like that uh, her sister uh, finds uh, finds and has sex with a, a man and they sort of communicate entirely through sex more or less so they, i mean there's a lot of sexual tension in that film but there's also a lot about uh, people being slightly distant from one another when in fact that they should probably be closer to each other but they mm. seem to they seem to sort of end up at odds and that power dynamic is not dissimilar it sort of culminates in a scene where the second woman anna is sort of having sex with this man in the same room as her sick as her ill sister and is sort of making her watch it in a way you know and her sister esther says what have i done to deserve this and um it, which is a fair question <laughs> um and uh, and i do th and actually i felt like that had parallels in this of when uh they just had their encounter in the bathtub there is also a scene in this where the in in the silence where the son uh, is sort of called called into his mother's bathroom to go and scrub her back there's this kind of slight sort of mm. uh, visual parallel in that but there, it, there's a parallel with the, the the sex in in silence of sort of parading your sexuality in front of someone. Where sort of John has broken off what was happening in the bath, and then they get the call from the air hostess um, who uh, who they'd sort of given their hotel address to before she's come to visit the hotel. So basically, this is a this is a girl with whom John can choose to have sex if he wants to. Yeah, she's being sent up to the room, and. John just sort of makes a point of uh, it, it, having her sent up to the room, and as you know, and, and Brian just has to sort of go and leave them alone. Having just been spurned by John, he has to sort of go off and leave them alone, you know. And John is just sort of uh, parading this in front of Brian. You know, he's sort of 
dangled the carrot. No, that's a terrible phrase. I can't. Sorry. He has. Uh... Ian Hart's one of the great Linonian carrot danglers <laughs> of our time. <laughs> um. He's uh, yeah. So I mean, you know, Brian has is sort of just been on the brink of you know getting exactly what he's wanted. If we, you know, if if we believe that exactly what he's wanted forever, um, and John has just sort of snatched it away from him, um, and is then uh, sort of quite crudely parading the fact that he's going to go off and have sex with a girl instead. You know, so th- th- that's sort of what, what and it's the similar thing that's going on. Yeah, in it's science, very similar, isn't it? Think, yeah. it's, it's interesting because um, I guess I. You know, I I didn't do the due diligence that you did and watched the silence, mm. um, but obviously read up a little bit about it and could see that there would be parallels between these two central characters and the way Lennon and Epstein are, are portrayed in, in the film. Feels like there's a lot more to it than just a sort of a common theme between the two films. It feels like there are more parallels than than just that from what you just said. Yeah. Uh, I also took it just to mean you know the 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 film they're watching the silence and this idea of there being these frequent failures of communication in the movie mm. uh highlighting the thing that we were saying earlier about how there there is this constant unspoken thing between them so literally the silence between them and it's highlighted in the film by um ian hart uh close up on ian hart just well they're both of them staring t- together at the film obviously in silence because in the cinema with, with ian hart chewing gum mm. um and yeah, and it it does feel like it's it's a hi- highlighting a, a, a that that clear unspoken thing between at that time. It is them being together in physical proximity, but obviously not calling out this you know big elephant in the room, as it were, between mm. them. Yeah, yeah. On the subject of other work that has parallels to this film, we should also mention that uh, the film's title comes from a Shakespeare sonnet, which is all about somebody being in love and and having to. I guess put up with that kind of power dynamic. It's a uh, it's the uh, sonnet fifty seven, and, and interestingly, we learn from the commentary that the film's title actually comes from David Angus just sort of reeling off the sonnet in rehearsals mm. as, a, as a thing that he used to do. Yeah, but uh, writer director Christopher Munch saw that actually there was a, a great deal of parallel between the subject of the sonnet and the relationship between John and. Brian and ultimately ended up uh, giving that phrase as its title, mm. but it's it's you know it's being a slave, isn't it? Is how it starts. Being a slave. It says being. What being should your I slave, do? What should I, being your slave? What should I do but tend upon the hours and times of your desire? I have no precious time at all to spend, nor services to do till you require. So yeah, and you know he, he goes on in that vein. <laughs> <laughs> he yeah. goes on for uh, exactly ten more lines. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah. Uh, but yes, so I think again, sort of a nice parallel there, because and really get into the root of what this film is about. Mm. This, this, uh, uh, we're at risk of of using the phrase power dynamic too much in this episode already. But yeah. it's essentially that is the focus. Of course. Um, yeah, yeah. So I mean, that that's that seems to be um, you know Brian's position. But I I, I exist to sort of uh, you know ser- serve your whims, mm. you know, and uh, and I understand that you're sort of capricious and sometimes you love me and sometimes you hate me but also that's kind of what i like about it he's in a position where he has to turn a blind eye and then i think there's a line in the sonnet about jealousy jealousy thoughts or something but you know basically having to sort of put up with that as part of their relationship uh yeah nor dare i question with my jealous thought where you may be or your affairs suppose but like a sad slave stay and think of naught save where you are how happy you make those I, don't, I, think, I mean that. I mean, it's it's really it's in your delivery. <laughs> exactly. Shakespeare hasn't been read until he's been read by you. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online 
and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. One of the things that first struck me about this film, which I hadn't seen before, I was aware of Ian Hart's performance as Lennon from Backbeat. Yeah. Um, so I was kind of, I kind of knew what to expect. Interesting, you know, it's obviously not the same performance there, but there are nuances between the two, but I kind of knew what to expect. I was very surprised at how striking David Angus is as Brian Epstein. Yeah. And, and in my mind, it seems like a, a good, uh, a very, fairly accurate mimicking of Brian Epstein's style and the way he speaks. Yeah. Is that? Did you find that as well? You're you're sort of closer to to this. Alone. Did you find that was a good depiction? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I was I was very taken with David Angus's performances, Brian. I I thought uh, so. It's interesting in this commentary on the DVD, they both talk a little about uh, the challenges about playing real people who are very well known. And mm. um, as we spoke before uh, in the backbeat episode about Ian Hart, and you know. His ten- it was not, not a sort of criticism, more of an observation of mine, that he, he sort of has a tendency to play the more acerbic version of John. Um, and he uh, he sort of addresses that uh, in this uh, in this commentary where he says that you, you sort of look for parts of a character. You don't and you try not to focus too much on doing a good impersonation of them because in the end that will sort of detract from the character. So it, you, so he said, I think they both said that they were uh, almost, you know, trying not to be too perfect in their sort of in, impersonations, you know, mm. just to, to leave room for character uh, to exist. Because also, you know, as we've said, you know, th- this could be a film about two people called John and Brian yeah, and, and, and essentially be the same, you know. Uh, without sort of mentioning the Beatles or their surnames or anything like that, you know. So I think it's important that they made that decision to just uh, allow the characters to exist and not just be impersonations. And you kind of get the impression that they're, you know, in terms of their approach to the character, a lot of work has gone into that because that's what the film lives and dies by, right? Mm. Is, there, is those portrayals? And um, I was uh, again surprised to learn there is an entire scene in this that was completely improvised by David Angus, and mm. it, you cannot tell at all that it it doesn't you know quite often I think in films particularly now I think there are moments where particularly in comedies I think you find that Judd Apatow is one for that kind of thing where he knows if he hires the right people then uh, he'll be able to just roll cameras and edit together later like the best moments to write. you can always tell which bits are improvised and which yes. bits are scripted yes you can. well i mean i think it just goes to show the work that david angus did to to understand the characters portray and to be able to do this scene mm. and for it to not feel out of place at all it feels very much like it was scripted gets across a, a melancholy to that character at, at that time mm. um that was completely off the cuff yeah, it, it, so it helps that apparently... So the scene is with a, a Spanish waiter called Miguel. So they, they were shooting this in a hotel and the waiters in it are real waiters. They're not actors. This guy didn't understand what David Angus was saying to yes. him. And, you know, he says in the commentary that perhaps if he did understand, he wouldn't, wouldn't have been, you know, quite 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 so happy to participate in the scene. You know? Yes, yes. Um, Particularly so at the point where he he, he suggests uh, receiving a blowjob from, from yeah. the... Um, from the guy, right? So yeah, I think yeah, he yeah. goes in the commentary and says, like, maybe later he on he discovered what was actually being said to him. <laughs> Could be left feeling quite angry, not realizing that was the case at the time. Yeah, yeah. But you know, the two the two of them both do a really good job, I think. You know, and it's kind of like I say, there are some other characters in this, but it's more or less. Uh, without wanting to make direct reference to uh, Pete Shotton's quote from earlier, it's more or less a two hander. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sure i'm sorry i had to no. <laughs> um uh-huh. and they play off each other really well uh it's interesting to listen to sort of two two actors talk i think they're talking uh, about 15 years after they uh, met and made the film i'm not sure mm. that the two of them have met since um but it's interesting that they have they just talk about you know their approaches were quite similar to it you know because i think i think they said that sort of david angus had been cast fairly quickly and it took longer to find find the John. That's right, like. yeah. And I think he sort of kept coming back to Liverpool and, you know, sort of try, trying to find someone. 
and Ian Hart was sort of a quite late addition. I think it sort of took took him a while to get this film made in general. And so uh, they both seem to have like quite similar approaches, you know, to the way they think about character. And I think that really sort of comes across in the film. You know? I, and also, I think it's it's very fortunate for a commentary track to be recorded fifteen years later, and both actors to talk about their approach to this film with quite a degree of clarity. Yeah. Considering the shoot itself was very very short. Yeah, so obviously they were, yeah, 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 incredibly short, yeah. and obviously you know that there's, and then and, and then I think it took Christopher Munch two years to edit it together yeah. afterwards for various reasons, but yeah, it's very interesting. But they they clearly resonated with those characters enough for them to be able to speak quite clearly about their approaches to the roles and what it was like filming and stuff, even though it was such a short stint. Yeah, definitely. I wonder how relevant it is that there there are lots of film depictions of John, certainly much more than there are of Paul. If you think of them as sort of roughly equivalent in their significance, you know, to the Beatles, to popular culture, to 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 everything, you know, John is depicted a lot more by actors than than Paul has been, and uh, it's really only ever been in two of us, I think, that Paul has been betrayed by an actor sort of as a lead character. The rest yep. of the times I can think of, so if you think of sort of Nowhere Boy or Backbeats, you know, mm. there's an actor playing Paul, but he's not the main character. Why is this, you know, is this sort of part of John Lennon's iconography in a way? Uh, the fact that he is dead is obviously not insignificant to that. It leaves a space in which in which people can sort of make those depictions, I suppose. It's and more it, creative freedom, isn't there? Yeah, and it creates a mythos as well. You know, I think that there's that thing that sort of Paul, I'm not sure whether he sort of directly put it in these terms, but I think, you know, he has has suffered from the fact of, as we've discussed many times, people sort of considering John to be the genius and uh, Paul to be the sideman. But, and I think it's fair to say that John dying was a bit, a, a big part of that sort of yeah, mythos being yeah. created. You know, the sort of de- dead rock star mythos, you know. Particularly is, is at a time a when it thing. was, I think the thing that sort of helps create that mythos, and this is really such a really obvious thing to say, was that so much of his iconic status is wrapped up in the work that he did to promote peace. Mm. And then only for him to be brutally assassinated. Yeah. That's, that's you know, that's just how martyrdom um, mm. comes, right? And yeah. so uh, you can understand how that's that's come about. I think... It is certainly that's you know that, that iconography is um, is a part of it. I think also it's so obvious that that John was a much more conflicted man. Yeah, uh, we don't really understand Paul in the same kind of way because those kind of things are more nuanced. But I think John is, is a kind of person who wore those things on his sleeve a lot. You know, yeah. there are lots of contradictions about John which are just lend themselves more easily to writing about him in films. And ironically, even though you could say that. It, it would be difficult to find a similar way of writing about Paul that presents him as a complicated person. Mm. And to prove that, Paul found that difficult himself when he wrote Give My Regards to Broad Street. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very much uh, a simple character in that. Yeah. Uh, ironically, I think the way that you would possibly do that now would be to um, explore Paul on film post the Beatles breakup and actually dealing with that difference in opinion between him and John. Because I think that's yeah. where a lot of his conflict would you know that's probably where you'd focus on in terms of a story because that actually is quite an interesting story this idea of everything we know about paul now being a creative spark and creative genius for the band but being overlooked in favor of someone who has more of a sort of higher profile status there's there's story in that yeah it's uh, it was sort of, you know it's it's an- angst in a way you know is part of part of what makes characters interesting um, mm. or you know i mean it, in most basic form just sort of conflict and resolution you know and there's there's obviously sort of inner turmoil in john that there sort of doesn't seem to have been in paul in quite the same way i think also sort of uh, depictions of sort of living icons on film are actually sort of fairly rare when you think about it i don't know if you remember when oliver stone made the film w with uh josh brolin playing george w bush which was i think the first ever biopic of a sitting president oh Um, wow because it, it it's sort of rare enough to make um make biopics about presidents who were alive, let alone you know actually you know still the president, you know. Because uh, I remember at the time thinking seems seems a bit soon. Not just you know give, give the guy a chance. Let's see what his legacy really is. I mean, I, I mean more like like this story isn't finished yet. And you're, yeah, and you're, yeah, yeah. As, yeah, I see what you mean because because the events of the film may have been and gone, but actually 
the full impact of them may not have resolved themselves yet. So yeah. you might be doing uh, soon. I think that's, I think that's fair. Also, there's there's a tendency I think that when you have films that are about living legends, they always feel safe because more often than not, those legends are part of it. You know, I'm thinking of like Rocket Man, mm. and like you know those uh, even Bohemian Rhapsody. Even though as much as that was focused on on Freddie Mercury, the fact that it was obviously steered by the remaining members of Queen. Yeah. You kind of always get this impression that there's a bit of a sort of a sanitized view of those events. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, like you say, the fact that John is dead is, I think it's a huge part of it because it feels like then you, you have that creative freedom of artistic expression to be able to have a bit more fun and be, go to places where you otherwise might not be able to. Yeah. And you, you mentioned before about conflict and resolution. That, uh, that reminds me of a point I was going to make about, um, I always like, being able to spot tricks that the director is doing uh, in order to help provoke a certain reaction within the audience. Yeah. And there's a lot of, in this film, off-center framing right. of characters. So Brian is frequently uh, shown to one side of, of a frame as opposed to in the middle of it. Mm. And that gives just gives this sense of unease and, uh, and this sort of slightly off-kilter um, feeling for, for him. Yeah. There are some moments where uh, the very first scene... You have Brian and John on the plane and John's asleep and Brian is looking and watching him sleep, which is actually how the film ends as well. Um, Brian watching him uh, sleep as he wakes up in the morning next to him, watching him sleep. And then John kind of just goes out of frame a bit like and he's he's off to one side and only you can actually only see half his frame because the, the camera is still focused on Brian watching him as he's talking to him. Mm. And I think that's a really clever way of showing that that's where the focus and that's the that's where the, the you know it's the importance of this relationship is placed and it's on brian and, and his view of john yeah and there are moments when boy he, you know when when david angus um improvises that scene he's off on one side and there's a an empty chair on the other side of the frame next to him and uh when the uh spanish waiter comes and sits down the camera just kind of shifts a little bit and centralizes the two of them as a pair whereas previously it was him on his own and it, so it feels like you've got this sort of off kilter um moment of of brian on his own one uh, off center on the frame mm. but when the spanish racer comes and sits down the camera shifts slightly and then it's they're framed centrally as a two people thing so there's a little bit of sort of conflict and resolution just in the way the camera moves in certain scenes yeah that's really interesting um yeah. I, I like you know again this is there'll be so much more of that kind of stuff in this film that i don't understand but i like spotting <laughs> these things where i can and being like oh i kind of see what you've done there and, and why you've made those decisions and i kind of mm. uh, appreciate any director that approaches films you know using the the tools to help provoke the same sense that he's trying to do with the actual script yeah definitely you know actually it's interesting that because you just made me think again of the talented mr ripley <laughs> which i hadn't until we started talking i hadn't it hadn't really occurred to me but but you know there, there are bits in that where sort of ripley is watching dickie greenleaf uh asleep on the train sort of as if you know it's maybe sort of foreshadowing as if sort of observing him in death you yeah know, when he sort of later beats him to death on that boat with the oar and he spends a bit of time in the boat with his corpse. Um, Talented Mr. Ripley is a fantastic film, by the way. You know, one of my favourite films of all time. And um, but it, so it really takes the, the 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 gay subtext in the book uh, and sort of really you know puts it front and centre, which which is absolutely fine. It's sort of um, Anthony Minghella's uh, choice, and it and it works really well. But I think there are parallels in that that I hadn't thought of actually. There are sort of parallels in sort of Patricia Highsmith's writing in general does tend to involve a lot, not least with the Ripley books, but also with lots of her books, does tend to involve kind of like sort of, sort of lovely European cities and sort of like oafish Americans in them just yes. sort of messing things up and misunderstanding the culture and uh, not wanting to observe the, the cultures of the time and sort of being, being clumsy and getting things wrong, which is which is obviously not quite what's happening here. But I think... There is that sense of, again, similar sense in the silence of sort of people visiting a country and sort of feeling out of place in it, you know, in a sense of going on holiday at all. The idea is is to feel out of place, you know, you know yeah. you, you're not particularly going there in order to sort of feel at home. It's sort of the opposite of what you're supposed to feel. It's sort of the point is sort of get get out of your comfort zone and, and yet sort of enjoy yourself in another place, you know. Yeah, I think maybe that uh, there are bits of that at play. But that idea of sort of feeling displaced in another country and it perhaps heightening uh, the emotions and sort of the the relationship that you have with a person 
you've transplanted from the country where you live into this country you're visiting and it sort of heightens those tensions in a way mm. and brings everything to the fore you know one of the things that i noticed was i don't want to go too much into camera work and stuff because i realize some of it can be technical and i think some of it can just be me reading too much into these things <laughs> but there's a lot of movement with the camera when it's following brian and john together and then so when, when it's both of them together and they arrive at at the hotel you know there is you, you know you, the camera is following one of them and then follows the other but actually when they're apart and they're on their own it's a very much a still shot and the so the camera sort of stands still when it's when it's a single focus on one character but it feels like it's in flight a little bit more when it's following both of them together almost like that's what's sort of keeping things alive is the is the dynamic between the two the pair of them but actually when they're on their own you have things like brian uh laying in bed you know very clearly on his own and feeling lonely yeah um you have a um a big close-up of john uh, on the phone to Cynthia, clearly unhappy and you know, or, or clearly not really wanting to have the conversation with his new wife. Yeah. But the but the the film comes alive more when it's the two of them together, and that's where they're actually having fun and um, enjoying each other. Um, well, well, also that that's where things are getting tense as well. You know? Yes. So it may be even if they're sort of being. I, I hadn't noticed that thing about the camera, but I can I can see exactly what you mean. You know, if the sort of camera is static when they're on their own, it me you know they're sort of. Uh, they might having be to face their um their the you know the issue the the problems that they uh are, are trying to get away from yeah I think yeah, yeah. and I think it it says a lot that the very last scene is of Brian leaving the bedroom and that's the I'm sure this probably isn't right but to me in my mind it's a very pointed reason for why the camera then spends a long time following Brian up out of the hotel room and onto the rooftop and that is the camera moving again almost like things have moved on in that instance mm. it's the one time we're focusing on brian and actually the camera's moving with him as opposed to it being a static shot and he seems happier and more positive in that moment yeah uh, as going on to rooftop uh and which by the way side note i can't believe i'm saying this about this film in particular but i've now lost count how many films we've covered that end on a rooftop <laughs> i was thinking that yeah 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 <laughs> and like surely that must have been something that because much was was uh thinking about yeah but yeah, lots of I don't know. Again, lots of lots of things. But I think it's really, really clever. And this this is why these films, films like this, when they're low budget, very much an indie film. This is a black and white film that was by by Christopher Munch's own admission was made as an experiment and was never made with distribution in mind. Yeah, ends up being widely acclaimed and winning awards at festivals because I think there's a high degree of detail about how the film technically achieves really powerful emotions fortunate yeah yeah it, i suppose it's interesting too that um as we said you know this, it, this could have been a story about any two people it sort of re reminds me a bit of um the episode we did about ch chapter 27 the film that's sort of ma mainly about mark chapman and how so, someone sort of making a like an independent film uh that, that could be about anything really the film chapter 27 could have just been a film about a serial killer but you make it about the murder of john lennon and this could have been a film uh, about two two men and their sort of undeclared or declared uh, love for one each other and uh, uh, one another and the sexual tension between them but it happens to be john lennon and brian epstein and actually it, it, it is a way to i don't mean to say that it was done cynically but it, it, it is a way to sort of bring attention to your film you know yeah. so i mean the the, the hours and times it's you know it's a 55 minute long black and white film that's quite moody and quite sort of you know arty for want of a better word <laughs> um it, almost guaranteed neither of us would ever have watched it yeah. if it hadn't been about uh, you know, yeah absolutely John, yeah it's John shorthand Brown. for what why there uh should be interest in these two characters yeah yeah exactly the, the, you mentioned earlier the scene where john is on the phone to cynthia mm. and i felt like um, there's a lot in that scene uh, about the sort of duality of him and his relationship with her and his relationship with women in general. He uh, he says in in the court, so we, we don't see Cynthia, we hear her voice on the other, other end of the line. And he, he said, during the course of one conversation, he says to her, stick it up your stinking ass <laughs> and just now I'd like to hold you. You know, it's all wow. in one phone call. And that really felt to me sort of, quite emblematic of his 
of their relationship in particular, but also just, uh, and, and you, you see it later on in his conversation with um, the stewardess, uh, and also just his the absolute duality of his relationships with women, mm. of just sort of alternately hating and sort of in, in some cases hitting them and or not being able to live live without them, you know, and sort of longing for them in a way, you know. Later on, that conversation with the stewardess, she's called Marianne, I think. Yes, that right? that's right, yeah. Um, she's very good, by the way. Yeah, um, she's it, brilliant. Yeah, she plays her. I think she, she really brings a sort of energy to the whole thing and sort of comes in and disrupts the whole thing at a very key time. I think it would be very, very easy to have written that scene. And by the way, everything you're saying there um, just tells me that we should be calling out what a great script this is because that scene with Lennon and her where he basically kind of just interviews her, like throws these like, and again, this brings forward this idea of duality, Mm. um, this, these sort of like a or B style questions. Um, uh, and and that the cover a range of different topics, some offensive, deliberately designed to offend, and and yeah. it's not. And I think it's very, it would have been very easy to write this scene as her being a excitable groupie, yeah, and happy to do whatever you know John wants her to do, yeah. Um, but she really holds her own, and yeah, it, it will not be sort of taken in by that, and and kind of sees through John. A little yeah. bit in that scene, I know, which is quite just an interesting way to have strength in that character mm. um, when the circumstances don't necessarily dictate that they should be. Yes. Yeah. So this is sort of minutes after the, the, the like the bathtub uh, instant where he and Brian have briefly kissed, um, and so he that, he's just sort of committed that sort of power play of sort of breaking that off with Brian and then having her up to the hotel room and, you know, making sure Brian has to go away. So Brian is presumably thinking, well, they must be having sex. And I suppose in John's mind, I'm not sure he particularly uh, is is in the mood to have sort of easy sex with her anyway. But if he wanted to, she's not going to make it easy for him in the way that he's probably quite used to in terms of groupies. Yeah, and also in the way that he's used to with Brian. Not in terms of sex, but in terms of like having someone who will basically hang off his every word yeah yeah exactly because you know th- you know if he in love with him in the same way that these these girls are in love with him yeah you know? and actually it's not, it reminds me of that um that quote in the brian epstein story documentary where you know someone I forget who someone says that you know brian once sort of went to the back of the auditorium at a beatles concert and sort of screamed along with all the girls and found that was great freeing, yeah. which is a lovely image you know um you know just those the sort of parallels between uh brian and the sort and the <laughs> the groupies if you like is quite it's quite an entertaining one but like <laughs> in this instance uh john is kind of expecting something from this woman that he doesn't get and she's kind of standoffish. She's also sort of, you know, he's he says something like very sexually explicit to her, yeah. uh, and it's deliberately designed to provoke and offend. And she's just, she's not sort of horrified, and she doesn't run away, and she doesn't sort of giggle girlishly. She answers very matter of factly, doesn't she? Yeah, and, and she's obviously just a bit sort of disappointed. Yes. Like, yeah, I think okay. that's it. That's what I mean by seeing through John. I think she sees that's quite a childish thing to do. And it yeah. is childish. That, that there's yeah. not, you know, he's doing it to try to provoke her. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's sort of interesting. It sort of made me think a bit of, you know, people will always talk about, you know, what what would John Lennon have been like now if he was alive, you know. And I think there's a lot in sort of popular culture these days, especially in comedy, stand-up comedy, of sort of people who seem really, really sort of transparently desperate to offend as a first course of action. I'll say something incredibly offensive, and then I'll sort of come up with an ideology of why um, actually I should be allowed to say whatever I want, you know, whether it's funny or not, you know, all I'm really trying to do is be offensive, you know. And I like to think that uh, there are a lot of sort of very intelligent people who seem to go along with that in quite an uncomplicated way, and I'd like to think that John wouldn't have been one of them because I think he certainly had that in him. Certainly enjoyed being crude, enjoyed being a little bit offensive, enjoyed shocking people. But I think there was more to him. There was certainly more to his sense of humour than that. And I yeah, like the sure. fact that this film, that this script brings in that tendency of his, but but makes clear that's not all there was to his sense of humour in the same way that Backbeat does as well. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. I think that it's. Uh, I think the film deserves... A lot of uh, the acclaim that it, it has. Um, I think it's a shame that it's kind of 
fallen under radar in recent days. It's actually very difficult to get hold of this film now. But yeah. I think I would urge anyone who hasn't seen this film already to not only seek it out and watch it, but actually also listen to that commentary as well on the DVD. Because I do feel like, uh, to use the unfortunate phrase that Ed used earlier, it's a bit of a two-hander. Um, in that you know you get an insight into John and Brian uh, in both of those. Uh, that's really interesting yeah so take that as a recommendation and we'll leave things there we'd love to hear from you if you've seen this film and have an opinion on it uh you can get in touch with us uh if you have an opinion about john and brian's relationship or if you think it's been remiss of us to have not mentioned in any of this episode ian hart's spectacular dancing um <laughs> please reach out to us on all social media platforms at beatles films pod either or you can write a review or leave us a five-star rating on your app listening platform of choice otherwise we will see you again next week for another episode and until then bye 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 bye